We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. You can turn there in your uh, bulletins or in your Bibles, or you can look on the screens. Uh, but we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, the first 20 verses. Mark 15, verses 1 to 20. Jesus has been in Caiaphas, the high priest's home. He has been tried by the Sanhedrin, and now he is uh, being transferred, prisoner transport. He's being taken uh, to uh, the Roman authorities, to Pilate. We're going to look to see that uh, trial there uh, and to see how it unfolds. So with that, let's turn to the text. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Hear God's word. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate again said to them, And what shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that's the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting it together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I ask for your help. I ask that you would help me to proclaim Christ Jesus and him crucified. Lord of glory. And Lord, as we see Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us in our walk. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the apex of the Gospel of Mark, I have to confess, I find it a challenge to preach. And that may seem odd to you. Um, You would think preachers would get excited. Here we are, we're at the gospel, it's Jesus, it's the cross, it's the resurrection. And, And in one sense, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Absolutely, I do. It is my raison d'etre, so to speak. It is my reason to be. It is what I 
feel called to do. It's why I became a pastor, to preach Christ and Him crucified. To preach the good news that Jesus died, that He rose again for sinners like you and me. That's my goal every, every single week. Every single week. Nevertheless, I I do find it a little bit difficult. And part of the difficulty of preaching the passion narrative is because like a stone that is battered on the, 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 by the waves, the sharpness of the text wears off, right? With time, with familiarity, uh, with knowing the story inside and out. The, 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 the sharpness of the text, the, the hardness of it sort of smooths out. It doesn't always impact us. And so when we come to the text, I think sometimes the cross can unconsciously, I don't think consciously, but, you know, subconsciously or something like that, become somewhat sanitized in our minds. And I say all this because I want to challenge us to think about this text anew, afresh. And one question that I think is helpful that came up in our community group uh, this Wednesday was, Why the cross? Why this way? You know, here we have God, the Lord of glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and the Son and the Spirit all coming together in eternity past to come up with a plan of salvation. And why the cross? Why did the Lord of glory, who had all power and knowledge, choose this path to save us from our sins? I think it seems like an awfully strange and terrible, in many ways, way, difficult way to accomplish salvation. And so I want that question to kind of sit, sit under the surface for us as we listen to the text. Um, why? Why the cross? It's a great question to begin, begin with because it, I think it forces us to examine the way of the cross more closely. And what I want us to do this morning is to examine the cross, and I want us to think about it more closely. So as we do that, what I want us to see with, with new eyes, with wonder, is how the Lord of glory came to earth with humble compassion to save us, broken sinners. That's it. It's a really basic sermon, right? To look and wonder at Jesus who humbly laid down his life because he loved. But before we see the humble love of King Jesus, we need to examine in the text the sinners and their sin that brought about the crucifixion. Because in their sin, we see reflections of our own sin. So I have uh, four points, and I apologize ahead of time that It's a little bit, I don't know, alliterated, but just bear with me. So the first thing that we see is the cold calculations of the Sanhedrin. Second, we'll see the cunning of Pilate. Third, we'll see the callous crowing of the crowd. Sorry, got a little ahead of myself there. And then finally, we see the cruelty of the soldiers. And then, and finally, I want us to see the compassion of the Lord Jesus. But first, the cold calculations of the Sanhedrin. 
Verse 1 says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, just a little bit of background. While in Jewish law, there were certainly grounds for capital punishment, so as they were under, uh, as Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin, he was under death, he was under a, 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 a the, the, the condemnation of death, and he was to be stoned, technically, according to uh, Jewish law. The problem was <laughs> the Roman authorities retained that, that, that single mode of punishment for themselves. So in minor matters, they would let the Jewish authorities handle matters themselves. But when it came to capital offenses, they took those matters into their own hand. And so they alone held the power of the sword uh, in its most extreme way. So, under Roman rule, and under their authority alone, could they accomplish this goal. So much to the consternation of the Sanhedrin, in order to find an expedient way to destroy Jesus, they had to bring him before Pilate, before the Roman authority. In this case, Pilate, who was the prefect of Judea, and there'll be more to say about Pilate in a minute, so I'll just leave that aside, but uh, they bring him there. And here are the, the first you might say, the cold calculations we see by the Sanhedrin. Um, and the first one that we see is that they were having this trial at night. We looked at it a couple uh, weeks ago. You'll remember that they took Jesus at night. And we noted at that time that one of the reasons for that was to avoid disturbing the crowds and the followers of Jesus by arresting him openly in public, right? So that was one of the reasons. But actually, there's a second reason why uh, that they did this at night, and this is more to the point of our text. It was to time it with the Roman courts and with the festival traditions uh, associated with Rome's releasing of a prisoner. And we'll see that in the text, okay? So, so they were looking to time their court case so that they could bring it to Pilate at the right moment, so that also that would be at the same time in which they would be releasing a prisoner. And we'll see how it all unfolds. But at the very least, I want you to notice the calculated nature of the Sanhedrin. Now, first of all, it seems an odd thing to bring Jesus to the prefect, to Pilate's house at the crack of dawn, right? There are certain things you just don't do in life. And I would imagine that dragging Jesus to your evil overlord's house and getting them out of bed in the wee hours of the morning probably doesn't, at least in my estimation, doesn't seem like a very wise thing to do. Why would you go at the crack of dawn and get Pilate woken up and get this trial going? That just seems odd. And I'll just say, unless there's an emergency, please don't come to my house at dawn. But actually, this was exactly the correct thing for the Sanhedrin to do. Roman rulers started their day at dawn, their work. And they did this for their own reasons, which was because that way, and, you know, if you get your work done early, then you can play later. And they had an interest in, you know, getting their work out of the way. Kind of a... An un- some of us are different, right? Some of you love to sleep in. My daughter was telling me her ideal is to sleep in, like to get up. Whereas I, I generally like getting up earlier. As a kid, I didn't, I know. 
But, but now, now, as I've gotten older, I generally like to get up early and to get working. Well, so it was with uh, the Roman authorities. Seneca, one of uh, the Roman philosophers of that day and age, a satirist and a, and a, a senator as well, around this time, he said this uh, with regard to um, people that would bring cases uh, to the Roman authorities at dawn. This is what he said. He said, all these thousands hurrying to the forum at break of day. And then he goes on and he says, how base their cases and how much baser are their advocates. And I thought, man, how unwittingly precious, prescient, uh, how smart he was speaking about this particular situation, right? Uh, how base their cases and how baser are their advocates. But you see in that how Seneca said this was the normal thing. People would bring their cases at the break of day. The Sanhedrin was calculating in their work, even in their timing of things, not just in bringing Jesus out at the crack of dawn, but also in coordinating their plot with the traditional release of a prisoner. Because of the festival, the Sanhedrin knew that the Roman authorities would release a prisoner to the crowd. That had been the pattern. And we'll look at the crowd in a minute, just like we're going to look at Pilate as well. But it's important to recognize that the religious leaders must have spread the word. We see that here in the text. They, when, when the crowd gathered, they went around fomenting the, the crowd to say, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus, right? That, that was what they did. I don't know how they did that. I don't know if they had like a, like plants in the crowd. I don't know exactly how they did this, but they went and they fomented the crowd. And I'm going to look at why the crowd would, would buy this in a minute. Um, but just note that they did this that this was part of their calculated nature. Of course, they fomented the crowd by telling the crowd, of course, that Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin as a blasphemer. I think that's an important thing that they probably said. And that he was also going to be tried for high treason under Pilate. I think they probably knew that as well. And... uh, and here they were. They, the crowds started to gather as well, and that's important. They went there because, again, it's the beginning of the day. They had, they knew that that Pilate was going to release a prisoner, and here was the Sanhedrin coordinating all this. In other words, they primed the crowds to turn on Jesus. Finally, the last piece of their cold calculation is that they, they reframed their judgment of Jesus to insinuate to Pilate that Jesus was not only claiming to be the Messiah, which they would have had maybe an inkling about, but they wouldn't have understood completely, but that he was in a real danger and threat to Roman rule itself. So they changed it from Messiah or Christ in, uh, in the Greek to King of the Jews. <laughs> in other words, somebody who wants to take over Somebody who wants to rule here instead of you, Pilate. That was the underlying message. Now, in one sense, Jesus is the king. The Messiah was to be the king. And not only king of the Jews, but we'll see it throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah was much grander even than that. Uh, He was one who would rule over the nations. Nevertheless, by reframing this title from Messiah to King of the Jews, they made Jesus a transgressor of Roman law. 
And what was the transgression? He had committed treason. This was a high crime. This was not a misdemeanor. This was a high crime worthy of capital punishment. Condemnable not just by death, but the most heinous kind of death. And there were other types of heinous death, but this one in particular, crucifixion. Now, that they were cold and calculated in their plot against Jesus is, is really disturbing when you think about it. How, how much they had to piece together to figure out exactly the best way to condemn, to get him condemned to death. And my question is, what caused them to turn so violently against Jesus? What was it? At what point did they say to themselves and to one another, we've got to kill Jesus, it's the only way? And then to move from that statement, okay, how can we get this done while keeping our hands clean? I mean, they had to plot and think and plan this whole thing out. It's disturbing, isn't it? But I want to suggest that it begins in the heart with the feeling of self-righteous justification. They truly believed that this was what was best, what was right, and what was good. And I often think, how calculated my sin can be. Especially when I start to call evil good. If I turn it, and I turn my mind to say, actually, this thing that I'm doing isn't just, it isn't evil, but it's actually what's best, right? I use my situational ethics, and I'll come up with a rationale. And when I start to do that in my mind and in my heart, when I start to calculate and convince myself that what I'm about to do is not only bad, but it's actually necessary, it's right, it's good. It's, it's at that moment that our sin isn't something we just haphazardly fall into. It's something that we conceive of, that we give birth to, that we let grow. We plot it out, a definite plan. Friends, make no mistake, calling evil good does not make it good. And ultimately, it is rebellion against the Creator and the King. But I just want you to think about that. What, what is it that would cause us to turn and say, this thing that God has called evil, I've called good. We've seen this cold calculation of the Sanhedrin, but I want to look at the cunning of Pilate. Pilate, a Roman prefect, a local governor of Judea, um, he was somebody uh, who had power and authority in this area. Um, and he received Jesus... And he received Jesus because he'd been accused of a high crime of treason, and he had to be dealt with accordingly. One interesting thing that we know, know about uh, Pilate from the history books, from people like um, Josephus, is that he had no love for the Jews. He actually did not like them. He despised them. And so from the outset, it's likely that Pilate had no desire really to... Uh, he didn't know much about Jesus, but he had no desire to kind of help uh, the, the Sanhedrin. No desire to acquiesce to them. In fact, one commentator noted that he probably wanted to acquit Jesus simply 
by virtue of it being brought to him by the Sanhedrin. Like, how can I get under the craw of the Sanhedrin? Well, I'm going to release Jesus. Um, that's obviously speculation. But that we do know that Pilate had a great disdain for uh, the Jews. Unfortunately for Pilate, it wasn't that easy, right? The Sanhedrin bought, brought their witnesses against Jesus, as recorded here in just short form where it says um, that, and the priests accused him of many things. In the Gospel of Luke, we get some of those accusations brought out to us. So if you were to go to read the, the parallel account in the, in the Gospel of Luke, you would see that. Um, now, in the face of these false witnesses, it's interesting, Jesus was silent According to law, if the accused made no defense, according to Roman law, if the accused made no defense, then the accusations would stand and Pilate would be uh, forced to, uh, to condemn him. This was frustrating for Pilate. So in the other gospel account, we know that he took Jesus aside. So Jesus didn't say anything to his accusers. He took Jesus into his house. Everything was happening outside because the Jewish, the Jewish leaders wouldn't go inside of Pilate's house because of its being ceremonially unclean and they were at a high festival. But so he takes Jesus inside that house and he starts to talk to Jesus and he questions them. And we get this discussion in the Gospel of John. Pilate interrogates Jesus privately. He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And in the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus responded with a question. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Now, Pilate is cunning at this point. He's not passing judgment just yet. And he says, in essence, I didn't say this. Your people are saying this. But tell me, why would they say this? What, what is it that you've done? Again, John records the conversation with Pilate that Mark leaves out, and Jesus responded not by denying the charge, but by reframing it, just like his accusers did. Jesus says, in essence, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, we would have fought back. You can go look at the Gospel of John. That's basically what he said. He said, uh, my disciples would have been coming out with swords and clubs and everything else. He would have gone and fought, but there was none of that. And so and, and now it's at this point, I think, that Pilate's like, yeah, this guy's, he may be crazy, he may be a lunatic, but he is, he's not a threat to, to me, I think, at this point. But again, Pilate, looking for him to either defend himself or implicate himself, says, so what is it? Are you a king? Or not? What? Just stop beating around the bush. Which, which is it? And it's here where Mark records only these words of Jesus. You have said so. Again, in John, we have some more words of Jesus. Remember, this didn't happen outside in the courtyard where he was being tried. This happened privately with, with Pilate. But Jesus says, you have said so. And in John, he added other words that Jesus said, that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then we have those famous words by Pilate where he says, what is truth? It's cunning. He's, he's, he's trying to figure out how to massage this situation to his advantage. Pilate must have been thinking, 
to himself when Jesus said, you have said so. He must have been thinking to himself, I haven't said anything. I haven't said anything. I'm giving you a chance to defend yourself. Help me out here. I don't want to give these men the satisfaction of having their way, but you just keep dancing around the question. But it seems clear that Pilate does not think him guilty of the crime. But in his cunning, instead of just acquitting Jesus, which would have been the just thing, which would have been the right thing, he decides to use the crowd's clamoring as a chance to release Jesus. Now, he doesn't know what, anything that's going on behind the scenes and all the calculations that the, that the Sanhedrin has been doing with the crowd. But he thinks, well, here's the thing. Uh, I can offer up one person to be released. And if I offer up the two, I'll say, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Do you want this one who's committed murder, who's a little bit swarthy, not a good man? Or do you want Jesus? This one who claims to be this king of the Jews, but he seems harmless and he has a following, but people love him. I'm guessing they're going to take Jesus. That was his calculation. That was his idea of cunning. Now, the crowds had gathered for this, but they had been informed and fomented by the Sanhedrin. And here's where Pilate's own cunning and calculation failed him. You see, he didn't realize that despite the fact that Barabbas was a more despicable person, how much the Sanhedrin had influenced the crowd. See, he thought, what an opportunity. I have a chance to kill two birds with one stone. I'll hold on to Barabbas, who we want to destroy because he is a traitor to the the Roman Empire who caused an insurrection. And at the same time, I can release somebody who really isn't even a problem. You see? See his, see his thinking? It's all about him, and he's, he's all about himself. And yet his cunning failed. Look at the crowd in just a minute, but I want you to consider this kind of cunning heart. The kind of cunning that seeks the promotion of self, the downfall of others, and is unwilling to do what is right and true and good when faced by opposition. It's the kind of thing our political world runs on, right? Pilate is just a typical politician in so many ways. He's just completely normal for our political world. You have retribution against political foes, a willingness to tell people what they want to hear. You always have, he's always looking for the angle, like, how is this going to help me? He assumes and presumes that lies are just a necessary instrument of manipulating everyone around them. Uh, And maybe this is something we struggle with to an extent. We can look at politicians and think, well, of course, they struggle with them. But But I think at its lesser form and where it begins or resides in the heart is this desire to please people. It is the desire for people to be happy with you even at the expense of what is true and right and good. It's why in the other gospel, I think it was in the gospel of Luke, where Jesus Pilate washes his hands, right? He, do, he doesn't want to be held responsible for these things. He wants to come out looking squeaky clean. And at the root of this, it's the desire to make ourselves king. 
is to put ourselves up and say, everybody come and worship me. Everybody bow to me. And if you're an opponent of me, well, I'm going to work against you. But if you are just one of the crowd, I'm going to glad hand you. I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to do whatever's necessary for people to worship me. People pleasing. It's where cunning gets us. But the crowd thwarted Pilate's political cunning. I want to look at the callousness of the crowd. That's crowing. It's often been asked, how is it that the crowd in Jerusalem went from crying Hosanna to crying crucify him? I think that's an interesting question. It seems a strange turn. Certainly many followed Jesus. He was followed by devoted disciples. He spoke with power and authority, demonstrating uh, that authority with miracles. Why now were they saying, crucify him, crucify him, give to us Barabbas? What would have turned a crowd to that? I'll just put it really plainly. They did not want Jesus as their king. I want you to think about that because I think at root of our own sin is this issue. We don't want Jesus as our king. Keep that thought in your mind as we look at this a little bit. You have to understand the moment. The crowds came early in the morning again because this is when the Roman government was going to issue a pardon. The people were not just randomly gathered, milling about. They were expectant of what was coming. They were in the height of their devotion to all things related to their religion and their people. This was Passover. This was the high feast of the year. This was the moment when Israel gathered together as a people and worshipped. And there in the midst of them, was an oppressive Roman regime. It's likely, we don't know for sure, there's a couple possibilities, but uh, Pilate, when it says he was in his, uh, uh, the, uh, the praetorium, the place where he would dwell, there's some who think it could be uh, in this uh, sort of um, fort, if you will, uh, that was built right next to the temple on the other side of the wall by Herod the Great. And that was a huge symbol of Romans' authority. But it also, it could have been that he was in Herod's palace itself. We aren't certain. That was a little further away. But nevertheless, whatever it was, it stood as a symbol to this nation gathered together of Rome's presence and authority. So when they came and they wanted to, 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 to worship God and they saw the Roman authorities, they thought to themselves, okay, what do we want? Do we want this one who claims to be the Messiah, who says, my kingdom is not of this world, who when, uh, you know, when is threatened or, you know, when is pressed, always acts meekly and kindly and with love? Or do we want Barabbas? Right? Or do we want an insurrectionist? Somebody who's going to fight, somebody who will take up his sword and actually do the dirty work. They didn't want a king like Jesus. So when Pilate came before them, here was Jesus, a blasphemer, a messianic character who didn't actually raise an army to defeat Roman rule. And here's Barabbas, strong, a fighter, 
And so they responded to Pilate's question by saying, release Barabbas instead. And as for Jesus, crucify him. You see, Jesus wasn't the sort of king they wanted. The Sanhedrin took advantage of this. Barabbas, not Jesus. And really, isn't this all of us? All of our rebellion against God and Christ comes down to this. We don't want the rule of Christ. Or maybe it's better to say we only want the rule of Christ when we feel that it's to our advantage. We don't mind him as a miracle worker. We don't mind him as a teacher. We don't mind him as somebody who will give us something. And even when we think about salvation, uh, it, it's, it's just this idea of insurance, right? Like we can think of Jesus in helpful ways, but on the other hand, his demands on our life is pretty high, isn't it? He says, pick up your cross and follow me. And we say, I want money, not Jesus. I want relationships and intimacy, not Jesus. I want liberty and prestige and power, not Jesus. I want to be well-liked by the world. I don't want Jesus. I want security and happiness and contentment, not a cross. Just as the Israelites said to Samuel some millennia before this event, they said, "Ah, we want a king like the nations. And just as the period of judges was a period without a king, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, so it is with us. Just as Adam and Eve bought the lie that they could be like God, judging good and evil. So it is with us. In the end, after everyone had committed their part in the conspiracy, Jesus faced the cruelty of the soldiers. The soldiers, they didn't want to be in Jerusalem. This was hard work. Here was an influx of Tens and hundreds of thousands of people all coming to a city, and they had to maintain peace and order. I'm not a soldier or an officer of the law, but I can imagine that that would be an extraordinarily difficult thing. And not only that, but these people hate you. Not only that, but likely their family is off in Rome or some other part of the Roman Empire. And here they were on the outskirts in Judea. They didn't want to be there. So they have an opportunity. Here comes this one condemned to die. One who claimed to be the king of this people you just don't want anything to do with. What an opportunity. They take him. They take a robe, robe, likely just like a, a worn out purple cloth of some sort, maybe a rug. And they put it around his shoulders and they put a crown of thorns and they place it on his head. And they start spitting at him and saying, King of the Jews. And they start worshiping and beating him and walking him towards the cross. Mocking him. There was cruelty in their hearts. Yet, like sheep before his shearers, the Lord was silent. 
And this is where I want to conclude. In all of this, through all of this, the most baffling part of this account is the silence of Jesus. He could, if he wanted to, have called down the angels of heaven and in that moment destroyed all his enemies and he could have ascended to the throne as the great king and he would have been justified. Yet he was silent. Here was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember that question I asked at the very beginning. Why why this way? Why the cross? And the only answer that I can come up with, because it seems so horrific and awful, is because there was no other way to deal with rebels who conspire, full of cunning, cold calculations, with cruelty, There's no other way except putting himself under the curse. Putting himself in the position that we deserved. Putting himself there and taking upon himself the very wrath. The wrath of God for sure that's coming. He's going to endure all of it, but our wrath as well. Why? To save us. To save us from our sins. Who is a God like this? Who is a Lord like this who would lay down his life? He is the compassionate king. There is none like him. If you're here this morning and you don't know this king, maybe you're like one of these folks here, you mock him, or you're just happy to make yourself king, or you're calculated against God. I want, to, I want you to consider what it would look like to bow your knee before one who willingly bowed his life to the grave for you. Pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin. What humble compassion and love. I just, just to wonder at that. I want us to consider what does it look like to follow Jesus to the cross? What does it look like for us to lay ourselves down with him? To take, to take all this stuff, the, the, the desire to be king, the desire to have control, the desire for people to like us, the desire for money, all of that, to lay it down, follow Jesus to the cross. Put our hope in him, find our, find our comfort and strength in him, to find our rest in his love. What a wondrous king we have. All praise be to Jesus. Let's pray.